Children's Church. And our library room is back open this week, so y'all can exit out this side door right over here. Parents, you're welcome. If this is your first time dropping them off, or even if it's not, you're welcome to walk them over there and meet the teachers and see the classroom. You can pick them up at the conclusion of the service. We hope y'all have a great time in Children's Church. Thanks, y'all. You'll see our scripture passage uh, for this afternoon is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. You can find that in the bulletin, middle of page 9. I wonder if you can relate to a tension that I feel in my own life. Um, I really, truly want to be a selfless person. I really do. I try to be selfless. I want to be selfless. Uh, The reality, however, is that I am much more often selfish in my life. Um, Here's an example. Uh, Any given weekday, uh, after a long day coming home, I pull into my driveway and I feel like there are two different people living inside of me. Uh, We could call them aspirational me and real me. Okay, so pulling into the driveway, I don't know which person's going to walk in that door. I want it to be aspirational me. Aspirational me is the me who um, has fully resolved everything from my day at work. Before I get out of my car, I walk into my house. I immediately put my phone in the basket and ignore it. And I warmly um, and intentionally greet everyone in my house. And I ask my wife some really engaging questions. And I listen to her responses. And then I look each of my kids in the eye and I get down on the floor. Maybe I play with them for a while. And we just have this wonderful evening where I'm just selflessly pouring myself out for my family. That's aspirational me. Okay, real me then, uh, the other person that might walk in the door, uh, real me kind of has like the workday jumbled in my mind. I haven't really resolved everything. I kind of come in on two wheels and I walk in and I kind of say what's up to my family and I immediately turn on SportsCenter and I get my phone out and I'm scrolling. And everyone's like, what What happened to this guy? Um, But there's truly on any given day, I don't know who's going to walk in the door Aspirational me truly wants to be selfless. Real me just wants to do what I want to do. That's what this passage is about. How do selfish people become selfless people? Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. 
Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. And we pray that you would do that just now by your Holy Spirit. Spirit, if you don't work in our hearts, we can't know you. And so we beg you to come and to transform us during this time. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, two headings I want to think about this passage from this afternoon. Uh, The first heading is people. The second heading is Jesus. People and Jesus. I have a mentor that says um, that those are always two great questions to ask of any passage in Scripture. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about people? So that's how we're going to approach the text this afternoon. We'll start with people. So what does it say about us? Okay, it speaks into two aspects of our lives, our problem and our calling. First, our problem as people is selfishness. Look at verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so Paul, remember he's writing a letter from prison to this church in Philippi. It was the first church that he planted in Europe. And he's writing to them as they are struggling with some kind of divisiveness or disunity in their church body. And he's saying, all right, do not act out of selfish ambition. Um, Do not act out of conceit. Um, Don't elevate your own interests over the interests of others. Now, this church in Philippi, it was not a problem church. You read some letters in the New Testament and you read about what's going on there. and You think, ooh, like that sounds intense. That was not the case in Philippi. Um, But there was some kind of division or bickering or infighting going on that if it wasn't addressed, it was going to keep getting worse and it could be a deflection point. And if you've been here at all in the last few weeks or been listening on the podcast, this is a major theme that Paul's addressing in this letter. The idea of unity or considering others first. And this is important for us to think about because it's not just a Philippian church problem. This is a human problem. It goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3. Think about Genesis 3, if you're familiar with the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, Rather than listening to God, doing what he said was good for them, and not eating of the fruit, what did they do? They put their own interests first, they ate, and it shattered everything. And so for you and me today, our selfishness, um, we're born with it. It it has its origins in Genesis 3. It's in our DNA from day one. And it gets expressed now in all of our relationships. We don't have to think too hard about when our selfishness last got expressed in a relationship that we have. And how conflict so often arises out of that. Maybe you have roommates. Uh, One roommate does not care about the dirty dishes piling up in the sink. That's just like clean dishes are not their love language. Another roommate, like that is maybe their only love language, to not have dishes in the sink, to have clean dishes. What happens? Conflict, frustration, division. That's selfishness at play. Or how about children playing? Two children, one toy. You've seen this happen before. When they both want the same toy, what happens? Conflict, frustration, division. Um, so often it's our selfishness that leads us into conflict and division with one another. And no one, no one likes their own selfishness, 
But we really don't like what our selfishness does when it's mixed up in a group of people. Have you ever witnessed a group of people? Maybe you're somehow an outside observer. uh, A group of people acting so selfishly that it sort of like makes you cringe at being a human. Um, I feel this way during Black Friday shopping around Thanksgiving where they always show like the terrible footage of people lined up outside of a store and the stores open and people are like literally trampling one another to go get a thing, to go buy a thing first. And then there's like two adults like playing tug of war with an Xbox. And then they start actually fighting to get the toy. And, and part of you feels like, oh my goodness, like what, what are humans? Why are we doing this? Um, think about the last time you flew on an airplane. There's something about like air travel that makes us turn into like subhuman creatures where, um, you know, when, you're, when your boarding group is getting called, suddenly you're like, you're eyeing the people in your boarding group and you're like getting as close as you can to get the best seat you can possibly get. And you want to use the, the storage bin, the luggage bin right above your seat. That's your bin. That needs to be your bin. Um, or maybe like not allowing the person in front of you to, to recline their seat because who does that? As you recline your seat, it's painful to watch because we can see ourselves in all of that selfishness. We all struggle with selfishness and no one likes what selfishness does to a group. Again, selfish roommates living together can create a really tense environment where people are going to start looking for a new spot to live. Or think about a basketball team, five selfish basketball players. That's not going to be any fun. They're not going to win many games. Um, If we're honest with ourselves, we all see this problem of selfishness. And we don't like it. We don't want to be this way. And God actually doesn't want us to be this way. He has called us to something different. So what's our calling? Our calling is selflessness. Selflessness. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3. In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, look also to the interests of others. Paul's telling the Philippians that if they become selfless rather than selfish, it's going to have a beautiful effect on their community. Um, if, If selfishness causes division and rivalry and disunity, selflessness creates unity. The same mind, the same love or heart where others become more significant. And think about those examples, right? Roommates living together selflessly, suddenly that's a really beautiful environment to be in. A basketball team playing selflessly, that team's not only going to have fun, they're going to win a lot of games. Um, and this call to humility that Paul is giving the Philippians, this would not have been celebrated in this context. Humility was considered a weakness rather than a strength in the Roman world. And yet Paul is calling them to live with this humble attitude of others first rather than me first. There's one scholar named Gordon Fee that talks about humility this way. Listen to this definition. Sometimes we think it's just thinking really bad about ourselves or speaking bad about ourselves. That's not humility. Listen to what Gordon Fee says. He says, a proper, it's a proper estimation of oneself. One who is well aware of one's weaknesses and one's glory but makes neither too much or too little out of either. True humility is not self-focused at all. So the humble person is one who knows their strengths, knows their weaknesses, 
but doesn't make a too big a deal out of either of those things. Rather, they're not self-focused at all. They're focused on someone else. So the call of humility is to take your eyes off of yourself and to consider those around you. I listened to an interview this past week with an author who he mostly now writes about business and marketing. And almost as, a, as an aside in this interview, he was talking about his own story and his own personal life. And, and he was saying that um, he got married a little bit later in life. He had children later in life. And so because of that, what had become a really big priority with him, he started doing the math where I believe his wife was a good bit younger than he was. And obviously he was going to be an older dad. And so he knew most likely that his wife and daughter were going to have probably a lot of years on this planet without him around. And so he said, I've got to start doing something now to prepare in advance for them to be set when I'm gone. And so he said they made the commitment to live off 10% of their income and to save and invest and give off the other 90%. Now, he is a New York Times bestselling author, so those percentages work a little differently. Um, but he's considering the needs of his wife and his daughter for long after he's gone. He's sacrificing and living selflessly now for their sake in the future. All right, we all want to be that type of person, to be selfless rather than selfish. How do we get it? Clue, it does not come from within ourselves. All right, we've looked at people. Let's look at Jesus. What does this passage say about Jesus? The first thing we see is that Jesus is the model of selflessness. He's a model of selflessness. Um, So if our problem is selfishness, Jesus is the exact opposite in his selflessness. Theologians talk about these terms, the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And we see both with just beautiful clarity in this passage. And we'll talk about his exaltation in a moment. But look at his humiliation, the humiliation of Jesus in verses 6 through 8. It's talking about Jesus, it says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, so Jesus, who always was and always will be God, willingly set aside his privileges as king over the universe in order to be born human into poverty, to be chronically misunderstood, chronically misrepresented, hated, persecuted, eventually dying the most humiliating and shameful death on the cross. Why? Because he loved you. Because he loved you. He considered your needs as more important than his own. That is the picture of selflessness, of sacrifice for the sake of others. He really did live a very obscure life. It's interesting if you read through the Gospels and think about his obscurity and how often he was misrepresented and misunderstood, especially by the religious people of his day. It was not a glamorous life. And he did that because he loved his people and he wanted to bring them back to the Father. Uh, my family and I recently watched um, sort of the behind-the-scenes show or the kind of the preview show of the 2022 HGTV Dream Home. And it's awesome. Um, 
HGTV has done this for years. And I told Aaron as we were starting the show, you know, houses have gotten so awesome, like in the last decade, uh, that, that for this to be a dream home, like they're really going to have to bring it. Um, and they brought it. Um, okay, so it's this, the 2022 dream home. It's like a mountain modern home in Vermont with like perfect views of the mountains, like multiple outdoor entertaining spaces with fire pits and outdoor kitchens. And it has these amazing skylights in the roof throughout the house. You can actually open up with a remote control. The skylights open. And then they have a rain sensor on them to where if you forget they're open, it starts raining, it'll automatically close them. All these amazing features. Everything about this home is perfect. And HGTV, they nailed it. Um, especially in our home-obsessed culture, they modeled the perfect home. It's the picture of home perfection. All right, Jesus in his humility, in his self-sacrifice, his giving up of himself out of love for his people is the picture of selfless perfection. Uh, if you want to know what selflessness looks like in its purest form, look at Jesus. And it is so different than what we see in the world. And it is so beautiful. And if Jesus was only our model, we'd be hopeless. Because we're not Jesus. We are sinful, fallen people. And so thankfully in this passage, Paul tells us that Jesus is more than our model. He's also the path to transformation. Jesus is the path to transformation. Look at the very beginning of the text in verse 1. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Uh, I was talking to a pastor friend this week who lives in D.C., and he's actually preaching through Philippians also, and he's a week ahead of me, which is great for me. And we were talking through this passage, and he said, you know, one of the things that stood out is that Paul is using all this rhetorical language in verse 1. That he's sort of saying, like, if this is true, if this is true, when in reality, the idea behind it is that it is true. These are sort of rhetorical things that he's throwing out there. These little parts of verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, participation, affection, sympathy... Paul is saying to the Philippians, hey, you have these things in Christ. You've been encouraged by him. You've been comforted by his love. You have his spirit living inside of you. You've experienced this affection and sympathy. Therefore, let that overflow into your church family. You've got these things already in Christ. Let it overflow. You don't have to muster up this selflessness from within yourself you actually have it already because you're united to Jesus. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying you, believers in Jesus, are recipients of this selfless love of Jesus himself. So treat each other this way. Use that same love for each other. In our den, in our house, we have a wood-burning fireplace, which when it's really cold... It's awesome. We love it. We have a big roaring fire. Um, something we've realized, though, in the five years we've been in our home is that when it gets warm and humid outside, it brings the odor of fireplace and chimney like right into our den. And so you walk into our den on a warm, humid day and it smells like you are standing in a hot, wet fireplace. It's amazing. You're all welcome to come over. 
Uh, why? The fireplace is, is featured very prominently in our den. It's the most central thing. And so as it goes for that fireplace, so it goes for the whole den. All right, when you are united to Jesus by faith, as it goes for Jesus, so it goes for you. Because he's the most central part of your life. You, if you're a believer, are actually united to Jesus. And it means you're united to his selfless love. Not just as one who's been the recipient of it, but also as one who can now, with that same love, love others uh, with a love that's not your own, but a love that comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus through you to others. All because you are united to him. You've experienced the self-giving, selfless love of Jesus. All right, this means two things. Two things for you. First is this. Uh, you really are forgiven for your selfishness. You really are forgiven for your selfishness. Um, whether it's like an occasional attitude of selfishness, it's maybe the driveway moment, like I described earlier, that maybe not everyone around you notices, at least as much as you think. Um, how you use your time, who you hang out with. Or maybe you think back to your story and there have been some moments where your selfishness has been on display in some painful ways, not just for you, but for others. And there are some ongoing consequences of something really selfish that you did or a season of selfishness. Maybe it's somewhere in between. Uh, whatever it is for you, you really are forgiven in Jesus. Because of his death on the cross, you're forgiven. Secondly, you really can be transformed from selfishness to selflessness. Change is possible. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you believe in Jesus, you're a new creation in Christ. That means by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you can more and more say no to your selfishness and say yes to the selflessness of Jesus. Um, I used to be terrified of going through the car wash as a kid. There's something about being in, in the confines of a car, and then when you pull in, the doors close behind you, and it's noisy, and it's dark, um, and you have like the monster brush and water and stuff spinning at you and coming after you. It was just a lot for me to handle as a kid. Thankfully, car washers have gotten a lot cooler since then, and a lot more high tech. Uh, but now it's amazing. I mean, you simply pull your dirty car onto the track, you put it in neutral, and then you, you, there's like flashing neon lights that happen now inside car washes, and it's like this whole entertaining experience. And your car is totally transformed. It's, it's one of these few experiences in life where you pull up with a dirty car, you go through this transformation process, and you leave with a clean car, all by hooking up to that little track in the car wash. Um, Jesus isn't just the perfect model of selflessness he is the path to transform you out of your selfishness into selflessness. But you have to be linked up to him in order to experience this transformation. I mentioned earlier that this passage shows us both the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Um, look at the very end of this passage, verses 9 and following. This is where we see his exaltation. Look at verse 9. 
Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so where did Jesus' humiliation on the cross lead Him? It led Him to be exalted in what? Given the name that's above every name. Uh, So much glory, so much exaltation, that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so the question that we have to think about for ourselves as we read this is, have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Is he Lord over your life? And I'm guessing you've had some experience with a church at some point in your life where that language of Jesus being your Lord and Savior is maybe not totally foreign to you, And it could be such that you've kind of heard it so much that you don't even really know what that means. Um, Does Jesus have dominion over your life? Have you surrendered every area of life to him? Have you given yourself to him completely? Um, I don't know how that sounds to you. Um, It may sound oppressive to give someone dominion over your life. Like you're willingly entering into something that's not freedom. But a lot of the kingdom of God feels very upside down to us. And there's this very paradoxical sense in which what we think is freedom, that is to be our own Lord, to have dominion over our own lives, is actually bondage. And what sounds like bondage, to give um, dominion and lordship over our lives to Jesus, that's actually where freedom lies. And I bet if you have lived with yourself at the center for very long, then you have an, an inkling of suspicion that, that that might actually be true. And so he offers himself to you this afternoon to be Lord over your life. And what kind of Lord is he? He's a perfectly selfless, loving Lord. So maybe you're here and you don't know exactly where you stand with Jesus. That's what's on offer to you this afternoon, that he would become your rescuer and your Lord. And he's a good Lord. All right, let's say you're here and you're all on board with that. You're tracking. Um, You want to grow. You want to be more transformed into this selfless love for others. Um, To be in that car wash, you've got to kick it in neutral. You've got to turn the wipers off. There are these things you do sort of to participate in the work of the car wash. God in his kindness has, has given us, he's invited us into this process of transformation. His work of growing us, of sanctification. There are ways we can participate in the work that he's doing in us. And sometimes it just means taking the next practical, doable step of obedience to him. So what's the next practical step for you to consider others' needs before your own? Maybe it's in conversation with others. Instead of talking first, you're going to ask three questions of the person you're talking to before you start talking about yourself. Uh, Maybe it's related to how you spend your time during the week. Maybe there's one block of time that you normally use for yourself. You're going to give away that time for someone else or something else. I don't know exactly what that might look like for each of us, but isn't it beautiful to think of a new church family who is proactively asking the Lord and dreaming of ways that we might love each other more selflessly 
as we form this new worshiping community. Let me pray and ask God to give us that grace. Father, thank you.